Hello, friends. Uh, you are back and listening to Behind the Knife. I am Michael Vu, and you know what? It's been a little bit of time here since we've done a transplant episode. So we all got together and said, heck, let's, let's talk about transplant this week. We're going deep into the nitty and gritty of surgical technique today, people. I mean, for this episode, I want you to imagine strapping on a GoPro to an experienced transplant surgeon's head and seeing each knife stroke, each retraction maneuver, each stitch placed in the execution of a successful kidney transplant. Uh, Of course, you'll in fact be listening to the technical steps eloquently described to you verbally by our guests, but I'm not kidding about the GoPro thing either. If you're listening to this as a podcast, you'll find that it's actually a video podcast. Um, And we'll also be posting the video to our YouTube channel where you may in fact be watching this. Um, So the operative video, uh, we hope will closely follow what you are listening to. Okay, let me introduce uh, our guest today. Uh, First and foremost, we've got Dr. Leanne Daggerford. She's a transplant surgeon at Massachusetts General Hospital and assistant professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School. Accompanying her are her two fellows, Dr. Anushi Shaw, one of the first-year transplant fellows, and Dr. Ashley Aaron, one of the second-year fellows. Uh, Big thanks to the three of you guys for coming onto the show today. I know that uh, the transplant surgery lifestyle is not always amenable to these kinds of scheduled events, so uh, it means a huge, uh, it's a huge deal for us to, to get you guys on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you don't mind, um, Dr. Dagafer, Dr. Shaw, Dr. Aaron, if our audience gets to know a little bit more about you before we take that deep dive into surgery, why don't you tell us where you grew up briefly and, and how you found your way into transplant surgery? Great. I grew up in Kentucky and did some school outside of Chicago and then spent quite a bit of time in Nashville, Tennessee, doing medical school and residency before I did my fellowship at Washington University in St. Louis. And then I became a northerner in some sense and moved up here to New England. Um, I became interested in transplant because of a living donor kidney transplant when I was a second year resident rotating on the transplant surgery service. There's nothing quite like it to see a kidney go from gray to pink and make urine on the table. So uh, I grew up in uh, New York, uh, went to medical school in the Caribbean at St. Matthews in Cayman Islands, and then I did residency in Phoenix at uh, Valleywise uh, Medical Center, formerly known as Maricopa Medical Center, um, and then came out here for fellowship. Um, I really got into transplant uh, when I was doing uh, mostly my vascular rotation first and really just loved doing anastomoses and uh, the maximally invasive side of the world. Um, And endovascular wasn't my thing, so I pursued transplant after I got exposed to it in my transplant rotations. Awesome, awesome. And Dr. Aaron? Uh, I grew up in the Midwest mostly and did medical school and undergrad at the University of Minnesota, which was always this huge transplant epicenter. And that's where I became interested in transplant. The fellows were great about taking us out as medical students and taking us out on donor runs and taking us into the OR. I held a Castro when I was a third year medical student, which was very daunting, but all that was so much fun. I had such good mentoring and I really loved the change in life for the patients. And that's how I became interested in transplant. And then I came out to the East Coast to train. I trained at Brigham for general surgery and for my ICU fellowship and then came just down the street to MGH for my transplant fellowship. 
Very cool. Well, thank you to you three for, for sharing your, your backgrounds. So let's hop straight into it um, with kind of a clinical vignette. So, you know, this is a pretty classic uh, kind of case, but suppose that you have a 57-year-old female with um, obesity, hypertension, diabetes, and end-stage kidney disease. She's uh, undergoing hemodialysis uh, through her AV fistula, and she presents for a deceased donor kidney transplant. Um, what, uh, what are the first things you're thinking about, um, when she comes in and you hear that there's a kidney available that are just going to be, you know, possible hard stops to this whole endeavor from, from, from the get go? Yeah. So I'll start. I mean, I just have to put out a disclaimer. There's a lot of different ways to do a kidney transplant and every center has a lot of different practices and training methods. And even within a center, all of the surgeons have different methods. So these are going to be the, the basic principles that are universal, um, like tension-free anastomosis, hemostasis, positioning, placement. Some of it can vary, um, but we'll kind of go through what we're most familiar with. Um, and to go back and answer your question about heart stops when we're first uh, presented with a patient, you know, we want to make sure that they don't have any kind of active infection or um check their uh, workup and make sure they don't have any cancers that are ongoing or untreated, um, and then overlook their uh, cardiac status, any coronary artery disease that would preclude them from the surgery. Um, and then also if they are on dialysis, when they had dialysis last, and if their electrolytes are not uh, amenable to anesthesia, then we kind of have to take a look and reassess. Okay, let's uh, let's say that your patient is um, going to be a good candidate for for your deceased donor kidney transplant. Because what we do want to get into is is drill into the the surgical principles and the technique. Um, you're in the OR. There are are so many. I mean, the the kidney transplant is just a rich network of decision making branch points, um, starting from when you get the the donor kidney on your back table. What are the kinds of things that you are thinking about when you're um, you know about to start this this transplant you're looking at this kidney and this patient on the table sure one of the first things i think is uh how the kidney looks the size um what side it came from right side left side and kind of orient yourself around the kidney um some come with a lot of fat on them some with very little um so it's kind of uh important to make sure you get your landmarks straight um and then the location and the number of the arteries veins and uh, identify the ureter. So for for kind of the medical students or some of the younger residents out there who, who might not be aware, um, what is the normal anatomic, um, you know, um, arrangement of, of how many arteries, veins, ureters we, the, the kidney should have? And what are some common aberrant uh, variations that you're seeing on the back table? So normal, you know, anterior to posterior vein artery, we always learn vein artery nerves here, it's vein artery ureter. Um, and obviously you want single of each, but there's always variations. Um, most commonly I have seen like multiple arteries, but I'll, uh, I'll maybe have Dr. Aaron or Dr. Daggerford uh, chime in here to see if they've seen more, more commonly other things. I've certainly seen multiple veins. Um, and I've sort I've, I've actually seen a couple double ureters, um, both in recovering the kidneys and then once having to implant them. So we certainly can have a lot of different types. As long as the length is, is good on uh, the arteries, almost all of them can be reconstructed as uh, so 
rarely do we encounter a problem where even multiple ureters, you just do two anastomosis to the bladder. And uh, for the artery, you have a choice as to if you're going to so in um, two separate anastomoses or potentially put them together into a fish, fish mouth um, where you actually put the two ends of the, the artery together um, to make a one orifice before you sew it in um, to the recipient. So thankfully, none of these uh, variances that we're describing would stop us from using the kidney for transplant. So besides variation in the number of tubes coming out of the kidney, um, what about the, the kidney itself? What, what, what do you do when you find a, a mass on the kidney? So you kind of want to evaluate it to see if it's a simple cyst versus something uh, like a subcapsular hematoma or uh, something more alarming like a malignant mass, um, and in which case we would uh, try to biopsy it. If it's a simple cyst or a hematoma, it kind of leave it alone and, and see how it reperfuses and if there is an issue. Um, but other than that, I think that uh, just to make sure that the capsule is intact um, and uh, evaluate the biopsy site, sometimes the site is big and you wanna make sure to plug it with a piece of fat or something so you don't have a lot of bleeding. Um, but other than that, I don't think there's anything particular like I look for uh, when I look at a kidney itself. So in regards to the, the patient then, um, let's talk about what choice of um, site that you're placing the kidney in. Um, first of all, wh when do you choose the, the left versus the right groin? So um, the right side is easier to expose and do the anastomosis. So most commonly we go to the right side. Um, obviously if they've had a prior transplant and this is a redo and they have the right side has been used, then we go to the left side, uh, which is also uh, fine to do. Um, rarely we go intra-abdominal if both sides have been used for transplant or the vessels um, that we would transplant to have a lot of calcifications or are not amenable to clamping which we would evaluate preoperatively from a scan how about those patients who have a peritoneal dialysis catheter in place um, how does that change your uh, your approach and your, your thinking so in our most common practice uh, for patients that have a PD catheter, uh, we still tend to go to the right side, uh, but we can also use the left side. It wouldn't change the approach. Uh, we do take out the PD catheters at the end of our procedure. Um, and that might not be something that's done universally, but at our center, we take them out. Um, and then if they need dialysis after, we would do hemodialysis. What's the reasoning for doing hemodialysis afterwards instead of peritoneal dialysis if the patient already has the catheter in place? Yeah, so uh, the best way I understand it, and Dr. Eifer, you might have to correct me, um, or Dr. Aaron, is that we, in case there is any violation of the peritoneum or anything, we just don't want um, that fluid getting close to the graft or uh, uh, any kind of spillage um, into the retroperitoneum from it. So I think it's easier to just take that out um, and have them go through hemodialysis for a short period of time if they need it. Okay. Sometimes uh, the peritoneal dialysis isn't felt to be as efficient uh, for achieving the clearance that's needed after a transplant as 
chemodialysis is. Now, there are some centers that use it and do it, especially um, in a pediatric world. Sometimes they're more willing to try uh, the peritoneal dialysis, but in a lot of uh, situations, it's just felt to not adequately clear the electrolytes. And so a lot of places opt for hemo in that situation. It's very sensible to me. Um, so I, I want to get straight into kind of the steps of the procedure, and, and I'll let you guys go from there, um, starting with whomever, and you guys can bounce back and forth uh, as comfortable. Why don't you just start from patient prep, patient positioning, and tell us um, how, how you do this, uh, this amazing procedure. And keeping in mind that, um, number one, it is challenging to visualize this kind of thing purely verbally. Now, we will have the video available, but some people might be listening to this in their car. So, um, uh, you know, try to be as precise as possible. And um, and a lot of our listeners are new in their medical education. So giving a lot of broad context over the anatomy and, and what exactly, um, you know, you're doing from a t technique perspective uh, would be super helpful. Uh, why don't you take it away? All right, so I'll start with the prepping and positioning the patient. We usually have them supine on the operating room table. Um, our perioperative meds include uh, uh, skin coverage, antibiotics. We usually use NSAF. Um, and induction includes either uh, thymoglobulin or Simulec, depending on the patient. Uh, some centers also use Campath. Um, and then we also give these patients Alumedrol at induction. Um, in addition to that, for prepping, uh, all these patients get a Foley catheter, um, and then we hook them up to a blue-colored uh, antibiotic solution um, in a saline bag, and that comes into play later on when we're doing the bladder anastomosis. Uh, we normally tuck the uh, arm that is that the kidney transplant uh, is going, the side that it's going to be on. Um, so if it's the right side that we're transplanting, we would tuck the right arm um, just for retractor purposes. Um, and then uh, after the prep, we'd place Ioban on the surgical field. So I'm going to just insert here um, what she's talking about when she's talking about induction uh, medication. So the miracle of kidney transplant really only happens because we're able to keep the recipient body from rejecting the donor organ. And the original kidney transplant, which happened in Boston, so we have to give a plug, happened um, between twins. Um, but since then, we've developed all of these mechanisms to try and suppress the immune system so that it doesn't reject the kidney coming from a, a non-self donor, so from the donor. And so to do that, at the time of the transplant, we give what's called induction immunosuppression. And it's a pretty big, heavy hammer of medications that push down on the immune system. And those are the ones that she was describing. So uh, solumedrol is a steroid um, that's very, we give a high dose IV steroid. And then um, we give thymoglobulin and or Simulect. And then she also mentioned Campat. So those are just different mechanisms of medications to suppress the immune system. Um, and those are what we call induction because they're given at the start, at the beginning of the transplant to induce the immunosuppression. And then after the transplant, these patients all stay on maintenance immunosuppression. So medication that they take every day for the rest of their lives to keep them from uh, rejecting the, the transplanted organ. And that induction regimen, that's the first time that the recipient is going to be seeing immunosuppression, uh, kind of the, you know, 
Yes. Some people give uh, an oral medication on the way to the operating room, um, but really it doesn't happen until, you know, really until they're in the, the operating room. And I'd like to just make sure we clarify that that blue colored antibiotic solution as well. So that is going to be going into the Foley, and it's an antibiotic um, solution that fills up the bladder, right? For eventually you'll be violating the the bladder in order to sew in that uh, that ureter. Is that right? Yep. The the solution is just really an aid to the surgeons to try and make sure that the bladder is easily identifiable. The okay. other fluid-filled sac in the abdomen is the peritoneum. We talked about peritoneal dialysis, and it would be a pretty major whoops to uh, mistake one fluid-filled sac for the other, and, and so the ureter uh, to the peritoneum instead of to the bladder. And so to help us, because um, we're, you know, we're not perfect by any means to help us identify that, we use blue solution into the bladder through the Foley that gives us a nice reassurance that we're sewing uh, the urine to the, the right fluid-filled sac. Well, that is a simple and clever way to make sure you're in the right spot. Awesome, awesome. Well, let's get to the uh, incision then, the good stuff. So once we're prepped and draped um, in the, for the incisional incision part, uh, we like to go uh, make a curvilinear incision about two finger breadths from medial to the ASIS and one finger breadth above the pubic bone. Um, and we make the skin incision with a knife and then take the abdominal wall layers uh, with electrocautery uh, and some blunt dissection. So uh, just to go over the skin, uh, the abdominal wall layers, you have skin and the subcutaneous fat. After that, you have scarpa's fascia, and then you run into the external oblique, aponeurosis, and muscle. Um, we go through that, and you have the internal oblique, and then the transversalis. And the peritoneum is right under the transversalis. We are usually use most of our blunt dissection here as well so that we don't violate the peritoneum enter the intra-abdominal cavity. Um, and we enter laterally to the anterior rectus sheath um, and sweep the peritoneum medially and superiorly. Um, and the native ureter is sweeped up with the peritoneum. So it'll be out of the area uh, where we would uh, identify the vessels and dissect this plane. And we dissect this plane straight down to the retroperitoneum until we reach the psoas muscle. And when we, uh, if, it, if the plane is correct, uh, it should be avascular, um, but sometimes you have a lot of collaterals um, in between the muscle and the peritoneum and the retroperitoneum fat pad that there is some bleeding. But we uh, enter this uh, space all the way down to the psoas, sweep up the peritoneum medially uh, and superiorly, and then identify the iliac vessels. Um, sometimes with our blunt dissection, some ways to make it easier is we'll just put a bunch of lap pads in there. It kind of does a dissection for us, especially if you're in that correct plane and it's completely avascular, like three, four, five lap pads, you'll usually have the size of a kidney. Um, and then after that, it's really just identifying, controlling the iliac vessels. So once we have created this space, um, we usually put on our retractors, uh, to, to kind of help us, uh, look at the vessels um, and uh, create our field where we're gonna be doing the anastomosis. Um, there are some structures you run into. Uh, so if it's a female patient, uh, you'll run into round ligament, uh, which we usually ligate. 
um, if it's male patient, will encircle the cord structures and uh, with a vessel loop and, and kind of get them out of the way under the retractors. Um, and then in both males and females, we'll ligate the epigastrics to help us with exposure. Sometimes, like we talked about before, if you know you already have some strange vasculature or multiple arteries, sometimes you can leave epigastrics as a point to anastomose arteries, but it's kind of a rarity, but that might be one case where you wouldn't necessarily want to take them ahead of time, but that you would probably know that ahead of time. So, so you might uh, do an anastomosis to, to the epigastrics, is that what you're saying? It's been done, especially with lower pole vessels, since that's very important. If there's any sort of injury to that, the lower pole supply is really your ureter, and you wouldn't want to accidentally remove that vascular supply. It, it can be done, it can be a nice little trick, but you would know that ahead of time from looking at your kidney, back tabling it, and knowing what vessels you have. And then uh, the inferior edge of our dissection is really until you feel the pubic bone um, and feel for the Foley balloon. Um, and that's when you kind of know you can stop there. And, and once you blow up the, or fill up the bladder, you'll be able to identify it there. Um, so once we've placed our retractors, we, we begin with our external iliac artery um, dissection and uh, mobilize it circumferentially. Um, and usually this art, the external iliac doesn't have any branches, so you can get around the artery with the penrose and then just take down the uh, attachments uh, from it with bovi. Uh, some people like to suture ligate these attachments as there may be some lymphatics here um, as well. Um, and uh, we do this both superiorly and inferiorly along the length of the artery so that we're able to medialize it if necessary. Some of the things you always look out for, there's usually a vein running across the artery very distally. You want to make sure and control that because it can be a difficult place to control if you accidentally come across it and have, don't have good control. But other than that, um, getting good, good length on both of those vessels, both the artery and vein really helps you once you have your kidney in place and are getting everything positioned. So you don't have any kinking and torquing for your anastomosis. Yeah, sometimes we'll use a Satinsky clamp just to kind of see how our clamping would be and if there's enough mobilization or length in both vessels as we're trying to uh, get around them and dissect them superiorly and inferiorly just to make sure that, that the exposure is good because uh, that is definitely the key in this operation um, in the start. And I will say like if patients have had prior appendectomy or maybe had a perforated appendix, this, this plane, um, and this dissection can sometimes be very difficult and sometimes the vein is hard to peel off and mobilize from the peritoneum as well. Um, usually the, the uh, dissection around the vein you can do bluntly with like even a suction uh, and to just try and get around it. But if they've had prior operations in this area um, or inflammatory reactions, this can be a little difficult. Is that a reason you may choose uh, to go on the left side from the get-go? Or do you usually give it a shot on the right um, and see what you come up against? In my experience, we usually give it a shot. Um, have you guys have you guys steered away? No, I, I mean, the right can just be so much easier as far as how superficial the vessels are compared to the left, especially if you have a deep patient or obese patient. But I would I would want to give it a shot unless I were very concerned. How many centimeters? Um, would you say you're mobilizing of, um, of both those vessels um, on average, just to give our, our viewers a, an idea of how much is needed for, for a good anastomosis? 
I would say it really depends on how everything looks. You've looked at your kidney. Um, if you have a living donor kidney, you're going to have a shorter artery and vein on that kidney. So you might want more mobilization. If you have very long artery and vein on a deceased donor kidney, you might not need as much. I have the preference of basically mobilizing the ex almost the entire external. So I want a lot of leeway. Um, I'm sure there are people that don't like to do that. I think it's really independent of whoever's doing the operation. So the kidney usually comes on ice. Uh, some people like to put a lap pad around the kidney just to keep keep the uh, keep it cold while we're doing the anastomosis. Some don't, um, but once the vessels are exposed, we're and there's good hemostasis, we're usually ready for the anastomosis. Why don't you take us through it? Which one are you starting with first? So we usually start with the vein first. Uh, we'll place the Satinsky clamp around the external iliac vein, um, create, make a venotomy uh, with the size of uh, our donor vein, um, and then use hep heparin saline, heparin infused saline, just to flush out the vein uh, and make sure that it's clear. It kind of helps us uh, clear out any leftover blood in the vein and also see if there's any kind of collaterals that are still feeding that vein if we need to reposition our clamping. Um, and then after that, we start with the anastomosis, usually with a 5-0 or a 6-0 double arm proline. Uh, we set both corners and tie them down and then uh, sew the lateral side first and then the medial. Once the vein is done circumferentially, we'll clamp the renal vein with a we usually used a Garbodi, which is just a shorter version of the Satinsky clamp. Um, there's different variations of this um, and kind of release the external iliac to check the anastomosis, um, but not reperfuse the kidney entirely. And then we'll leave the renal vein clamp while we sew the artery. Okay. So just to help visualize, this is an end to side uh, anastomosis. Yeah, and, and so how exactly are you clamping with the Satinsky for, for our listeners? What, what does it look like, um, you know, the, the vessel after it's been clamped? And so the so, way I think, oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. You might be better at, uh, able no. to explain this, how it looks. So first off, just for what a Satinsky looks like, um, basically I kind of think of the Satinsky almost looking like a little dipper. There's basically a square bottom and then a handle that comes off one side. And when you clamp the external uh, vein, you're gonna have the clamp coming off distally, so towards the feet. And then the little tip, the little part of the square will go off towards the head. And that way the vein is between these two points and that bottom connecting point of the square is underneath the vein. That way you have both um, distal and proximal control with one clamp. And then when you take that off, after you've made your um, anastomosis, you put on a smaller clamp on the renal vein and that way you don't get that warm blood shooting up back towards the kidney. Some people don't use a Satinsky. Some people use two independent clamps and don't even take it off at that point. It's just a style preference. Okay. If that helps. It does. Thank you. We'll say that some people medialize the artery before they sew in the vein. And some people only do that depending on if they're sewing in a right kidney or left kidney, but other places uh, routinely medialize the artery. So that just means um, it's a little bit easier to sew the artery anastomosis after the vein has been sewn because it's, it's kind of medialized to the other side of the vein, whereas usually it would be more lateral. And where's the donor kidney sitting while um, you're doing all this? 
who's the surgeon. So sometimes uh, some people make a, like a kidney sock. Some people put the kidney in a little sling that's made of a, a lap. Some people put the kidney down in the abdomen and um, put ice packs by the kidney. Whatever we're doing, we're trying to sew quickly um, to minimize our warm ischemic time, meaning while the kidneys, you know, not fully on ice and not reperfused. Um, and we're trying to 